welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Good morning. It is great to be here worshiping with you this morning. I'm just so, so grateful to see all of you here, especially making it here in as cold of a day as it is. Um, I'm Father Morgan Reed. I'm the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church, and I'm just delighted to to gather together and worship and hear from God's word this morning. Uh, let me pray for us as we begin. And before I do that, if you didn't know, maybe you don't know this, we have kids' bags out on that welcome table that have some crayons and paper and some scratch scratchers. And so if you want those, you are welcome to do that uh, and get one of those for your kids. I will go ahead and pray for us as we begin. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, there was a weird phrase that I was introduced to this week, uh, and apparently it's a really common phrase that everybody knew but me, and the phrase is that familiarity breeds contempt. Um, it often refers to that withering of happiness that happens as two people in relationship to one another start to get to know one another. They call that the familiarity that breeds contempt. Um, But it doesn't have to be that way, actually. Uh, Familiarity, instead of breeding contempt, could be an invitation to be curious, to lean in, to listen harder. But sometimes it isn't. And in today's gospel narrative, Jesus is back in his hometown where he's super familiar to people. And he encounters a synagogue filled with people who have grown contemptuous in their familiarity with Jesus rather than being curious about who he is. That contempt and the familiarity reminds me a bit of about a narrative about one of the neighborhoods that existed in Franconia, which is part of Alexandria and Fairfax County, part of the area that we're called to serve. Um, And we've been in this series called Nations and Neighborhoods, asking the question how God's grace being lavished on our households and on our neighborhoods fits within his broader plan of lavishing his grace in the nations. And as part of that series, one of the things I've occasionally tried to do is break down some of the neighborhoods or the stories of people who built the neighborhoods that we're a part of or that we're serving or that we've inherited and live in. A few weeks ago, uh, we looked at the murder that happened at Keene's house uh, of Old Keene Mill. Uh, And so you can go back and listen to that from two weeks ago. And then the bishop came last week and reminded us of the Holy Spirit's work in the salvation of the nations as he confirmed and received several of you uh, into the church. And that was a joyous celebration last week. And today I'm going to be talking about somebody uh, named William Jasper, uh, whose gravestone is on the screen behind me. And the story of William Jasper and and his family is is a story about the life of African-Americans who lived uh, in what is now kind of on the border of Franconia and Kingstown um, over 100 years ago. So back in 1808, William Jasper had been born into slavery 
And he was at the Hayfield Plantation, which if any of you are familiar with the area, uh, you think Hayfield High School. So that area was a plantation. It was owned by George Washington, actually. It was the western part of his Mount Vernon plantation. And then he sold that part off to settle a debt. And a bit later, that ended up in the Foote family, as Foote with an E at the end. Uh, Foote died in 1846. And when he died, in his will, he set his slaves free rather than selling them to the south. So William Jasper would have been about 38 years old by the time uh, he was given his freedom from slavery. He was given freedom along with his wife, Sarah, and his two daughters, who were ages six and four at the time. As freed black people in Virginia, before the Civil War, they couldn't own a gun, they couldn't obtain an education, they couldn't vote, they couldn't conduct business freely, or, surprisingly, even worship in a religious service unless supervised by white people. So he saved up enough money, which was, at the time was about $200, and he paid a white slave-owning farmer for about 13 acres of land to farm. There was a handful of other freed black families that purchased land around that area as well, uh, which, which we now know of as Franconia. They would band together and they would build the institutions in that area that were necessary to achieve a more literate, uh, a more just, successful, and free society for their families who were all living there. And the two institutions, I find it fascinating that they built uh, in that area were a church and a school. Those were two things those families banded together to build. What Jasper did, William Jasper, is he deeded a half acre to church trustees who would then construct the church and the school side by side to one another. And that school was called the Laurel uh, Grove School because there were actually laurels there. It was a worshiping in the grove of laurels. Um, it always had slim support compared to other schools in the area. And I mean other black schools as well, um, because it was more rural out here. And uh, they faithfully taught children within a five mile radius. And as I was reading stories, it was kind of amazing to think of school aged children walking five miles on a day like this to go to school. I and mean, that's really incredible to think about. And they would go there to learn the classics and, and, and to learn math and, and to learn English and, and trade. And, and so, they were, so they were learning industry and classics and, and these children were being educated in Franconia. The school itself actually functioned until the 1930s, which means that anybody who would have gone to that school up to the 1930s uh, it would be in their late 90s right now, and so most likely we don't really have any stories left from anybody living. But back in the early 2000s, they did actually record some of their stories, and you can find those online. They've since rebuilt the school. Uh, it, it was dilapidated, and so they rebuilt it as it would have appeared in the 1920s, which uh, I have a picture of here. And it still functions as a museum. There are hours that you can go there and see it. Sadly, the church that was next to it burned down in the 1990s. And I took a picture of that as well, but I didn't put it up here. Um, but the community that was part of that, in that building, that church, they still meet online or on the phone. And they seem to still have a plan to rebuild the property, uh, according to their website. But the Jaspers and the other families that were around, I mean, they owned tens of acres 
in the Franconia area before the Civil War began. These were, you know, native Virginians who set up the church and the school as institutions for fostering human flourishing and independence. And because a lot of their industry was farming, that area wouldn't have been densely populated, uh, which was true for over 100 years. Uh, And it wasn't well resourced like schools like in Woodlawn or other um, black schools that were closer to Alexandria. But it's an important site, uh, Laurel Grove School is an important site for understanding the early development of this area. And since 1999, it's actually become one of the sites along the African American Heritage Trail. Um, So over here on Beulah Street in Franconia, uh, there's a well-known site. So as I look at that this week, um, I've been thinking a lot uh, about, you know, what it would have looked like if these people who were strong Christians, who built an institution around education and worship, what if they had been brought to the table um, by their neighbors around them who may have valued the same things? Other than Quakers and a few other groups, the reality is that most of the Christian groups, you know, including Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Episcopalians, were often the ones pushing for some type of segregation and separation based on, for a lot of people, faulty, uh, maybe even we could call it heretical, uh, idea of blood purity around race. And so I recognize that discussions about race in America are really controversial and complicated, um, and that makes them important to have. But this morning, I, want to, I don't want to talk more broadly about those. What I'm thinking about and focusing on is a narrow topic, which is the neighborhoods that we live in and that we're a part of and that we're called to serve. And here's what I see when I look at the church and the school at Laurel Grove. There was a group of people in the vicinity that should have been part of a greater discussion that were often left out. And they were our brothers and sisters in Christ. They went through a lot to set up a church and a school and a community that would allow for future generations to flourish and really have flourished. We hear their stories of flourishing. And we need to be mindful about the ways that we're tempted to create narratives about otherness in culture and in the nation and even like another neighborhood Um, otherizing people, if you will. Um, An open heart to God's work starts with love for the other because that's the precise place where we see God's plan for the salvation of the nations unfolding. It takes those who feel like they're other and then it invites them in to become the household of God with us. And in the gospel this morning, Jesus returns to his hometown At this point, he's around 30 years of age, right? He's just been baptized in in Luke's gospel. He's he's gone through the 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. There's been a period of preparation that nobody, hardly anybody in his hometown has been a part of. They don't know what's been happening for decades with Jesus. But as far as they know, he's just Mary and Joseph's kid. He's the kid they saw running around down the street playing with other kids. They saw him grow up. They would see him in synagogue each week. He was a nice kid. So maybe they knew he was special, but they hadn't really grasped the full implications of what that meant yet. Jesus had returned after some time in the passage that he reads in the synagogue before the one we read this morning was from the book of Isaiah, 
which talks about the spirit of the Lord resting on the Messiah. How the Messiah is going to bring healing to the nations and good news to the nations and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that's the passage he's just read. And then he folds up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant who walks it back. And then he looks intensely at the group looking back at him and he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. And that's how they understand it. They have preconceived ideas about what the Messiah should look like, should do, should be like. And their familiarity with Jesus causes them to doubt, as you would expect. And so they test him. And they ask Jesus for a sign. If you look at verse 23, what it says is that what you did at Capernaum, do it now in your hometown too. They've heard about his reputation, so prove it. Jesus is not going to be baited by their whims or their anxious thoughts um, because he is a willing sufferer. Um, And he patiently brings about his will and his good timing. He's not insecure, wondering what he can do to get people to trust him. He's confident in God's plan and his timing. Instead of caving to their desires, what he tells them is he tells them that he's like those other prophets in the Old Testament, specifically Elijah and Elisha. And here, these are really unpopular examples. The first example comes from the days of Elijah when he is sent to a Phoenician, a a Gentile woman during a time of famine. To the exclusion probably of many who were going hungry, possibly even widows who were going hungry in Israel. Why would Elijah go to a Gentile woman when there are are people going hungry in Israel? So then he brings up his successor, Elisha, who went to a man uh, named Naaman of Syria. Uh, He was an enemy of Israel, right? Syria is an enemy. And then despite uh, the fact that there were a lot of people within Israel who needed healing from leprosy. But Elisha's called to go over to Naaman the Syrian. And, and that's why the synagogue gets angry. If you're wondering, why did they react so harshly? It's because Jesus is like, I'm like one of those prophets. He's essentially saying that those who are closest to home are going to be essentially passed over for a while. While he is God's prophet is now going to those who don't believe, uh, don't have access to this message. And the message is being brought It's being brought to those who are outside, uh, possibly even unwelcome to those who are even enemies. But at the very least, we could say people who are other than us. And not only does Jesus face that same unwelcome exclusion as those who are outside, those Gentiles, but because he's an insider, it's even worse. And he's taken to the top of a cliff to be thrown off says that Jesus made his way past them and he went away. And then the passage concludes with Jesus teaching on the Sabbath back at Capernaum. Remember where he had been doing those signs previously. I'll just go back to Capernaum where there's fruit. Um, Now Capernaum and Nazareth then become symbolic to us uh, of a posture, a posture of the heart. Um, Capernaum, the posture is ready a heart ready to meet and discover Jesus, whereas his hometown, Nazareth, is a heart whose disposition is closed off to the work of God. 
There's a um, familiarity with Jesus in his hometown. And that familiarity could have been an invitation to ask what God's been doing over the last 30 years in his preparation. But that familiarity, the, the surface familiarity, instead it creates this fixed narrative about who people think Jesus is and who people think the Messiah is. And they close their hearts off to the work of God. And because of that, the prophet is then rejected in his hometown. So that story in the gospel, it challenges me to listen well. It challenges me to look more closely at what feels very familiar. There are at least four times a week where I drive along Beulah Street uh, towards Franconia Road. And on the left, when I pass it, I see the Laurel Grove Colored School on Beulah Street. And I'd always been curious about it, but it was familiar. I just kind of went by it. Uh, And I'd never done a deep dive on what happened in that neighborhood. And what I discovered was a community that was hundreds of years old. It was strong. It followed Jesus. And it was forced to take care of its own needs in relative isolation. And by going there, uh, last Thursday, I went there and just, I prayed there. And I discovered uh, when I was there, something that you can't see from the road, which is a graveyard. And that graveyard... Uh, When you go there, you will see the names of many of those early settling families um, up to the present day. And so what I discovered was our friend William Jasper himself was actually buried there. And when you look, it's this strange contrast between a graveyard of these early settlers of this area. And then behind that is the Metroplex, all of these large buildings in the Innova Hospital Center to the left. Um, It's quite a contrast of old and new. Being there, uh, what it did was it made me think a lot about the voices that are considered other to me in the body of Christ. In in our neighborhoods, possibly. um, In in other cities. You know, but the the needs of our neighborhood, spiritually, physically, our our neighborhoods are multi-ethnic now. and, And this is a melting pot in Springfield of Christian churches. Um, They call this area the mixing bowl because of the freeways, but quite frankly, it's a mixing bowl of cultures too. And so when you look at around around Springfield and Franconia, there are a lot of different types of people. And um, and what what we're called to then is to pursue deeper understanding, deeper conversations, and more meaningful conversations with one another, especially with those in the body of Christ. And so it's one of the reasons that I'm excited for us to do a prayer walk coming up in the next few weeks. Um, save, your, save your Saturday, February 19th. We're going to come here in the morning and depending on the weather, of course, uh, we'll go out two by two and pray for the neighborhoods around the area. We're going to pray. We're going to listen. We're going to notice what might be familiar. But all of those things are a receptive posture for us to listen and to receive. My hope is that in doing that, we're going to continue to grow and be better listeners to the Holy Spirit. What he's saying through the other people that we encounter, through the things that we see. And I'm hoping that it reveals to us what or who might feel like they're other to us. The landscape of this area has obviously changed drastically over the last just 30 years. And, and so one of the advantages of being a new church, uh, a new church plant, is that we don't have to look at the way that things used to be here uh, because we had no used to be here. Uh, we weren't here then. 
And so it informs us as we move forward um, that we're listening to the Holy Spirit for who the people are here and now. That kind of posture is what trains us to take what might be otherwise familiar and instead of rejecting it as familiar, to cultivate curiosity about it. We're more ready to discover Jesus in those places that we didn't actually expect to find him. So now when I drive along Beulah Street, I see that little schoolhouse. And I remember that there is a graveyard that nobody knows about if they're just driving past it along the road. And then I look back and I see that giant metroplex that stands behind it uh, over the humble grave of William Jasper, who has one little tiny road named after his family, maybe less than a block. Uh, And the ways that their family and other families with them created community in that area and the ways that they helped people flourish through the good news of Jesus Christ. And I remember how hard they had to work against all odds. And I'm reminded how much I need what feels other to change me uh, by having a seat at God's household table. And they shared so many aspects of the kingdom that might have been unwelcomed in their hometown. And that, again, reminds me to take what might feel other and to create curiosity about it. And in that curiosity, what I think is going to happen is that we will discover Jesus. And what is other is going to expand our vision of how the love of Christ goes out to the nations and to the neighborhoods that we're a part of. Let me pray for us. O eternal Lord God, you hold all souls in life. Shed forth upon your whole church in paradise and on earth, the bright beams of your light and heavenly comfort. And grant that we, following the good example of those who have loved and served you here and are now at rest, may enter with them into the fullness of your unending joy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.